Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. Good to talk with you again. Let me know if every other week this new release schedule is working for you. So, hey, welcome to episode 3-256 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a long interview with Christina, who earned the moniker Danger Girl by converting herself from the couch to a competitive downhill mountain bike racer. And then, after crashing too many times, she had to limp away from that sport and despite her doctors, took up trail running and now is a competitive ultra runner. So now she's looking to transform her life again by hosting running retreats for women up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. She's a master of transformation through endurance sports, and we chat all about it in a rather long interview. If the interview doesn't seem tight, it's because I, it's because I gave Jim, my master editor, the week off, and I edited it myself. So uh, you'll have to suffer through that. <laughs> uh, I didn't think I was going to get shot this week because I've been traveling and my life is full of the bric-a-brac of stuff that lives get filled with. But a trip got canceled and here we are, aren't we? Since we last spoke, I've had some ups and downs in my training. I'm right on the edge of being race ready. My plantar fasciitis is hanging in there. It's real good. And my physical condition is good. My overall fitness is pretty good. But my race fitness has yet to fully click in. You know, I'm about a month away, a little bit more than a month away from Boston. I'm seeing and I'm feeling flashes of race fitness. But it, I, would, I wouldn't bet hard cash on it right now. It's a fragile fitness that will require a good day and good conditions for me to make my A goal. I ran the Martha's Vineyard 20-miler a couple weeks ago. Saw Alette down there. Funny story, Alette showed up. She only she brought two left shoes, had to borrow shoes. She borrowed shoes and ran it anyhow. She got all blistery. I had a mixed race. I couldn't get my heart rate to settle out for the first half of the race. This is another one of those winter races where the weather is a factor, especially on the back half. It runs out 10 miles and then cuts back across the island for another 10 miles. And having the advantage of having run this race many times before, I purposely overdressed. And I paid for that in the first half, but appreciated it in the second half. Just like Derry, I was overheating and I had to take off my hat and my gloves and unzip. And I was sweating like crazy and I was really uncomfortable. I couldn't figure out my heart rate. It never came lower than a zone 5. But I was holding conversations with people, so something wasn't right. I certainly didn't feel strong. I kept trying to slow down, and people were passing me. Finally, around eight miles, I pulled off to relieve myself on a golf course and decided just to ignore the heart rate and just to run by feel. Because, you know, I'm a veteran. I know my machine. I'm just going to run by feel. And when we turned the corner at mile 10, I was glad to have my extra clothes, my hat, and my gloves, put everything back on, and the temperature dropped. And it began to sort of rain snow like a mixture, snaining. Knowing this course, this is what I was waiting for. This is what I was holding it back for. 
and for some unexplainable reason, as it got cold and miserable, I relaxed, and I felt better. And my pace smoothed, and I started repassing those people who passed me earlier. I remember running up behind a young lady who had passed me before, and we had a conversation around mile four, and I said, How you doing, number 477? And she said, Not so good. And that's the trick with this race. It suckers you into thinking it's easy, and then it smacks you in the face with freezing rain. And I saw the ambulances going by on the back half, probably pulling people out of hypothermia. I felt strong on the back half, and I averaged at or under my goal marathon pace for most of it. And I remember mile 17 was a particularly good mile, and I was able to relax and stretch it out, and I felt strong at pace and well under my goal marathon pace, and I felt the strength. I felt the race fitness. Mile 20 was a bit of a struggle, but I ended up finishing about 12 seconds a mile off my goal race pace. So, I mean, it's within reach. Like I said, flashes of race fitness. That's why I like to race instead of just doing the long training runs. You learn so much more about your fitness in a race situation. And since then, I've mostly been doing boring training runs, except for a nine-mile pace run earlier this week that was just horrible. My legs were like lead, and I had to walk a bunch. I think Coach screwed up. He gave me these squats and weighted lunges on the day before, so my legs just weren't up to the pace and effort. It was awful. I've got an 18-mile goal pace workout on the schedule for tomorrow, and the thought of it scares the heck out of me, but (laughs) I'm going to approach it like a race and see what I can learn. All these workouts are just building blocks. Today, I'm going to give you some ideas about how to look and sound brilliant, brilliant, during these moments of truth in our life balance section discussion, and I'm going to philosophize on the rest week in the tips and training section, and I hope you enjoy it, hope your training is going well, hope your life isn't too interesting, and finally, I hope you are enjoying this adventure. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. How to be brilliant all the time. Brilliant. Brilliant. Or at least when you need to be. At some point over the last few years, I wrote a post about the importance of moments of truth. And these are those events, these situations and moments in your life where what you do What you say and what decisions you make can change your future. These moments have an outsized impact on your life. These moments of truth have a high perceived value. They're the big test, the big game, the big interview, and the audition. If you are able to ace this moment, doors will open for you in your life and your career. These moments of truth also have a high perceived risk. If you fail that test, if you fumble the ball, if you blow the audition, your life is ruined. If there was ever a time for you to bring your A game, it's for the moment of truth. So beyond these big moments of truth in our lives, our lives are filled with thousands of smaller daily moments of truth, personal moments of truth. They're everywhere all the time. Every interaction with your spouse, your kids, or even the lack of that interaction is a moment of truth that can subtly change your life and theirs. Outside of your family, your work life, and your daily interactions with coworkers and bosses and vendors and customers, each one of those is a moment of truth. 
Every time you interact with someone, they are taking notes. They are positioning you in their own constellation of participants. They're judging you. They are ranking you. Don't be offended. All humans do it. You'd be surprised at how quickly others will act to categorize you based on these brief interactions. Understanding the depths and nuances of individuals and personalities is hard work. So most people come up with shortcuts. They'll just remember you as the person who didn't smile or had no good answer. I've got two lessons for you today. The first is to understand that every interaction you have, every transaction, is a small moment of truth. So don't throw them away. Take the time to look people in the eye. Take the time to ask them how they are and if there's anything you can do to help. The simplest and most powerful thing that costs you nothing is to, at all times, simply try to be positive. Be the person who wants to help. Be the person who wants to understand. Be the person who says everything can be fixed and everything is going to be okay. Bring that positive attitude to your interactions and you will be categorized quickly as a valuable person and a valuable partner. But you've heard all that before from me and other people. So I'll move on to my second point. How to be brilliant when there is that big moment of truth. So the simple fact is that you can anticipate moments of truth. They don't randomly happen for the most part. I know, for instance, that a politically powerful executive in one of my meetings or presentations may seek to express his power by challenging me. He or she will come out of the gate swinging, and it may look like rudeness or a personal attack. They will ask attack questions with disempowering assumptions like, this kind of thing always fails. Why should I give you even five minutes of my time? The situation here is not important. I'm just using this case to highlight my point about those big moments of truth. In this case, I know that the executive doesn't want to know the answer to that question. They want to know what kind of person I am and if I am someone they can do business with. They want to watch how I react to the attack and how I answer the question. They want to know if I'm an alpha dog. See, they are in very, in a very real sense creating a moment of truth to see how I handle it. The way I respond will determine if our companies can work together or if we can work together. So I have been in this situation enough times that I know how to react and how to answer. And even though this is a non-scripted interaction, an impromptu moment of truth, it really isn't. I know it's coming in my particular context, and I have learned how to read, interpret, and use these moments of truth. I could set up my life in such a way as to avoid this type of stressful moment of truth interaction, or I can be aware of them and prepare. If I'm prepared for the question then I can make it look like I'm responding unscripted and off the cuff, when in reality I'm not. I do this, and I send the signal that the alpha dog is looking for. See how it works? If you examine the big moments of truth in your life, you'll find that many of them, the majority of them, fall in the category of things you can prepare for. In this case, the thing I am always preparing for and always preparing the people who work for me and with me for is the hard question. Every job or role has its hard questions. You know what they are. 
Don't wait until you're in front of a crowd in a conference room and look like a deer in the headlights. Write down your top three to five to ten hard questions and script a compelling answer to them. I mean, it blows me away. Why do people think, well, if I just don't think about what these hard questions are, maybe somebody won't ask them in a bad situation. If you're new to a position or to an industry, ask your customers, ask your vendors, ask your partners, ask the people you work with, what are the top three hard questions that you get asked? And then you write down the questions and you write up compelling responses to them. And then you practice your answer, you practice your response. And by the way, this is a great way to create compelling blog posts and white papers that will get you noticed in your industry. They're full of great keywords and lots of emotion. I'll give you another example. You're called to present at a big meeting. How do you react? Do you try to avoid it? Do you stumble through it? Do you see it as an opportunity? How many points in your life have you been called upon to speak and you have fumbled it? Folks, you know at some point you're going to get called on to speak. Whether it's answering a question or you find yourself in an elevator with the CEO, it's going to happen. Why not prepare some words? Why not be ready to present at a moment's notice? Not just any answer, but a powerful, thoughtful answer. You can do that by preparing simply ahead of time. Now, some of you may remember a politician from Massachusetts, where I live, named Tip O'Neill. Tip was a power broker in the U.S. Congress for many years, and Tip could tell a story. He could tell a story or a joke or stand up and entertain any crowd. And how did he acquire this talent to always be ready with an impromptu speech? Well, in his autobiography, which I read, called Speaker of the House, he told a story about when he met with Boston's uh, ex-Mayor Curley. And Mayor Curley was one of these old-time master politicians. And Mayor Curley told him to memorize certain parts of famous speeches and even to memorize certain Shakespeare. And in this way, whenever Tip was called upon to speak or needed some comments, he'd always have something important and thoughtful to say, or at least thoughtful sounding to say in his back pocket. See, in this way, Tip was able to succeed at many of the moments of truth that confront a politician. You can do the same thing. You may not be a politician, but every role has its great stories that can be learned and told. Do your own research and be prepared when a question is asked or you have to stand up and speak, own those high-impact moments of truth. Learn how to tell good stories that are compelling. Take the time. Hard questions and good stories will get you through 80% of the moments of truth in any job with flying colors. I had a boss in one of my companies a long time ago, and we were going through some sort of transition. I don't even remember what, but this guy had to meet with us and explain the new organization to us. And it would have been easy for him to mail in this meeting, to just show up and get through it. But he didn't. As he got into his talk, I realized that he had taken the time and scripted this speech or these words for impact. And that what he was doing was that extra work to make this an impactful moment for us. And I don't know if anyone else in the room realized. I mean, I picked up on it because, well, you know, it takes one to know one. And it wasn't the content or the delivery that impressed me. It was the fact that he took the time to create and script his words for this interaction where he really didn't have to, and that impressed me. He understood the value of the interaction, 
and treated it as a moment of truth. And you know what? That guy ended up as the CEO of that company and is now the president of an even larger company. So if you know a particular interaction has the potential to be a moment of truth, put the effort into preparing. If you have the opportunity, why not make yourself look brilliant? Don't assume people want a middle-of-the-road answer or a speech or a talk. Find a way to add emotion to it. Make it impactful. If you have the opportunity to set yourself apart from the pack, seize it. You know your industry or your situation. Make sure to allocate some time to study up what's going on and what's going to be needed and talked about and be prepared to talk or tell stories. Be prepared. I know that many of you are thinking that these moment of truth interactions are by definition very stressful. Maybe you go into the moment of truth prepared with good intentions, but you are so stressed out about it that you can't execute, you can't deliver, you freeze. So this, my friends, is a case of not bringing the proper intent or inner game to the interaction. And we've talked about this before. You are focusing on all the bad things that can happen. That is an attitude of scarcity. You want to bring in an attitude of abundance to that interaction. You need to bring a confident, calm, inner game to the interaction. How do you do this? Well, there's many ways to eliminate stress, but practice is probably the best. If you can prepare, then you can practice too. Run through the good scenario and go over and over it in your mind. The other thing that I find helpful when I find the stress level is rising is just to remember who I am and what I am capable of. In the heat of the battle, I can recenter to that sense of self that I've cultivated over time and my confidence returns. And many times I'll smile too. In a stressful, combative interaction, People become hypersensitive to your physical cues, so watch your body language and smile. And guess what? You can practice that too. And as you start to get some experience in acing your moments of truth, you will develop that self-confidence to be able to react appropriately to those moments of truth that are ambushes, like when someone corners you and aggressively asks you a yes or no question, and no matter what answer you give, you're in trouble. If you have cultivated your inner game, you can work with these ambushes by pushing back or choosing the third way. You need not be cowed by an aggressor. So, my friends, I hope this has given you some food for thought on how to look spontaneously brilliant in your important interactions. Moments of truth are still moments of truth, but they don't have to be surprises. If you look at the moments of truth in your life, you can find a way to prepare and practice and use them to your advantage. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Christina, how are you this morning? Good. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm fine. <laughs> you you said you got 15 inches of snow, and we got uh, about six inches of snow at my house. So at this time of year, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to assume it's going to melt. I don't know. We're about to um, go play in it. Try to do Are some you? more snowshoe running. Oh, yeah. I went out with the dog a couple times this week because the trails were a little packed. And as soon as they get packed down, it's just like running trails. It really makes no difference. It slows you down a little bit, but it's actually a great core workout. Oh, it's wonderful. And up here in New Hampshire, there's such a wonderful network of snowmobile trails that yep. we use those 
once the snowmobiles get out and pack it down. Yeah, and that's perfect, you know. And and the problem is they've banned the snowmobiles from a lot of the places I run down here in Massachusetts. So okay. So those guys can't get out there, but I agree with you. Those guys make like a highway. It's and awesome. You don't even need snowshoes. No, I never run with. I uh, used. I you know. I I went through a yak tracks and you know putting bolts in your shoes phase, but I just put my trail shoes on with a little aggressive tread, and I can run through almost anything. Yeah, it's great. We actually did 21 miles yesterday in, on snowmobile trails during the storm, and it was just incredible. Yeah, and it makes you really strong because there's a a little bit of lateral slide, and you can't toe off as much, so your your form has to be pretty clean. You know, you have to keep a pretty high cadence to keep going. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Danger Girl. I love that, Danger Girl. We were talking before, and you explained a little bit about uh, about how you said you were a non-athlete until you were 17 or so, and then you you turned into a competitive mountain bike racer, which is interesting because I was a non-athlete until I started running marathons and doing triathlons, and then I took up mountain biking, which I'm still terrible at. But... Uh, <laughs> You you then got too beat up to mountain bike anymore, and then switched to uh, trail running, and now you're 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 a sponsored ultra person. So you've transformed your life a number of times. So give me the give me the two hundred words on on your story. Tell me your story. Um, basically, my hobbies were going to the mall and sitting on the couch eating donuts and watching television. And a friend had asked me if I wanted to try riding mountain bikes one day, and I said, sure, I'll go do it. And I bought a cheap bike and ended up becoming hooked to that sport. And then, you know, a few years later, became a professional downhill mountain bike racer and spent too much time landing on my head. Um, Several injuries later, I had to walk away from it. And then I found ultra running. Um, Basically, it was a dare from a friend. And it became the sport that I was not only best at, but it was a sport that I was able to find a lot of peace through on my longer runs and met some really incredible people along the way. So you were a downhill mountain biker. So that's on the the special, the bikes with the big springs, and you put all the the equipment and padding and helmet on, and you just you go 100 miles an hour down the the trail. Yes. <laughs> that's that's crazy. It is crazy, and it's fun. I mean, it was just an awesome part of my life. Um, it was really hard walking away from it, but it, I'm glad I did it. You know, it was a really cool experience. How fast do you guys get going? Like 60, 45? I mean, how fast do you get going I don't think, things? I don't think you go that fast. Um, I never put an odometer on my bike, so I really don't know. But fast enough that when you do crash, it, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but what amazed me, because I looked at some, you know, I'd be running some of the trails these guys would be riding, and some, <laughs> of the, some of the rock drops in these trails, like where you are in New Hampshire, um, some of these things are like, you know, 15-foot rock drops that they're flying over, but they're going so fast they don't even feel it. No, and, and honestly, the bikes, the way they're designed, when you come off a drop of the biggest I've done is 10 feet, um, and that was scary. But you land, and they're just designed so well where it absorbs everything, and it's almost like you never left the ground. You hit the ground hard a couple of times, and that's why they call you Danger Girl? Yes. <laughs> and it was always on the small things. It was never the big things. I yeah. guess it's when you let your guard down, that's when you get hurt. Yeah. And uh, so you got pretty beat up. What was that moment you decided that instead of sitting around and going to the mall, you wanted to go and ride a bike down a hill? 
it was just pure boredom. Um, there, honestly, I went out. I had I did up my hair. I had huge hoop earrings in, pair of denim shorts, and a white tank top. Have no idea why I dressed that way, but I did, and went for a mountain bike ride. Spent a lot of the time on the ground, but there was something really fun about it. And you know, of course, found myself in a bike shop buying a better bicycle. Um, you know, tights, things that were more appropriate clothing, and just started racing to make friends, you know, and that shaped my life. I was really raised where women don't do things like that. Um, My parents didn't really approve of my new lifestyle, but it's just taken to me to a really wonderful place in my life. You got to the point where you were winning or uh, up in the top pretty good at mountain bike racing? I did, Um, and it was pretty cool, but once you get to that level of racing with the downhill, it's just the competition is crazy. Um, the courses obviously become a lot more dangerous, a lot more terrifying. And it's, I just, you know, I just graduated college. I was focused on my career, and my last injury was really bad. I had uh, about 18 concussions. I'd broken my back, dislocated my shoulder, and essentially had to just walk away. Yeah, well, you, that's the thing. You're lucky you could walk away, right? Very lucky. So then, then you get to the point where you're you can, you're not going to mountain bike anymore, and you're looking for something to do, and you discover what? Running, <laughs> um, and that was more of a dare. You know, I was well, it began a spite towards my doctor because he said I could never run. Um, so I woke up one day, went and bought a pair of sneakers, came home, ran about two and a half miles downhill, and I realized I had to turn around and come home, and that was beyond ugly. Um, I couldn't walk for probably a week without a hobble, but there was something really fun about it, and I wanted to be able to run that whole loop. So I started practicing, and one day a friend caught wind of it and said, hey, there's a 16-mile trail race coming up in a couple of weeks. You should do it. I don't usually turn down dares like that, so I accepted the challenge and had never run in the woods before, but I completed the race, and it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah, I really like the trails um, around where we live, but more specifically around where you live, because there there's still a lot of forest where we are, and we can get out uh, and run something like the Wapak Trail and be out in the woods for three, four, five hours, and it's just beautiful. Yeah. Actually, I love that Wapak Trail. Um, I did that race this past May, and one of the really cool things about the race that day was, um, I didn't expect it, but I finished with the women's course record, which that was a thrill in itself, but waiting for me at the finish line was my boyfriend who proposed to me um, when I finished the race, so that was a a really special place for me. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I was there, right? That's my club that does that race. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that race too. That was my first long trail run. I'll I tell you my my Wapak Trail story is I was training for trying to qualify for Boston, and uh, and I was just I was between marathons, and I was really beat up. I had some uh, some injury issues, and I said, "Oh, here's a nice 16 mile trail run. That'll be just right. You know, I I need like a two hour run. That'll be just right. 16 miles. I had never done that kind of technical trail run before." And, and, of course, I show up in my road shoes. And you know this race. It's like, you know, 60 people show up. Yeah. And, and it's four mountains. 
that you have to run over twice. Uh huh. Highly technical, and I'm out there in my in my road shoes, and uh, I I did okay, but it was certainly it took me like almost three and a half hours to finish it, and I lost both my uh, big toenails in the process. So yeah, that I love that course. That's a great course. Yeah, it's definitely a fun one. And I'm originally from Connecticut, so that's where I started trail running. And the um, Nipmuc Trail Marathon, or not the marathon, but the 16-miler was my first race. Okay, the Nipmuc, yeah. So so how has, let me ask you the big, the big question here, how has running or even mountain biking or endurance sports, how has it transformed your life? How has it made you a different person? There's actually several ways. Um, one is the people I've met. They're just an incredible group of people, um, down-to-earth, mellow, and, you know, people that you can just enjoy the outdoors with. The other big thing, you know, obviously you become more fit. Um, you know, you start learning about taking care of yourself, eating more healthy, um, you know, appreciating the outdoors. And just the personal, I think emotionally, it's therapeutic to go out and run long distances. You know, some of my biggest problems in my life are solved on a 20-mile run. Um, You know, and when I'm racing, especially the longer races, 50 or 100 miles, in reality, it's so much easier than everyday life. You know, as soon as that race is over, your phone's ringing, there's text messages, there's Facebook, there's emails, um, there's bills to pay, there's a job to go to. And I think doing these long runs and races brings some sort of peace and sanity to my life. So it's and almost think, a, it's it's almost a uh, a therapeutic time out from from life. It is, and I think everybody, you know, in one form or another, really needs to have that therapy because it just helps you be a happier person, feel better about yourself. Um, how can you not feel good when you've just completed, you know, 50 miles or 100 miles, it's whether you're the first person or the last person, that's an incredible accomplishment. So how does that cascade over into the other areas of your life? You know, how do, how do you carry that with you? I think about it all the time. Um, you know, I, I'm constantly thinking about my running, um, my next run, which trails are my favorite. If I'm having a really bad day, I try to visualize some of my you know, favorite moments on the trails. I love the White Mountains. And going up there and just spending time, you know, running around about tree line. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful up there. It's beautiful. Yeah. I uh, I remember running uh, up Lafayette one time. I had a wonderful run. Oh, it's gorgeous. You know, and the other thing is I have, you know, an incredible fiancé who's also a very talented ultra runner. Um, he does well at all the races. And I met him through my running, and I was never a dog person, but we ended up getting a dog so that, you know, I could have a trail running buddy. And it's just been incredible. What kind of uh, four-legged trail partner do you have? He's a Wirefox Terrier, Uh and they're just, he's done 24 miles and still wanted to play fetch afterwards. Yeah. He does about 50 miles a week. We give him a couple of rest days, but he does not let us sleep when we give him the rest days. Yeah, well, that's the same thing. My dog gets nuts if I don't run him at least once a week, and I'm he's at the point now where I gotta I gotta take it easy on him because uh, he's he's 10 years old. But 
you know, my wife says you're beating up the dog, but if you saw him out on the trail, you wouldn't say that. No, but I mean, they're so happy. They're so happy. He just goes by me, and he's dancing. I swear to God, he's just, like, dancing, All right? Yeah, and then they sit there and look at you. Are you coming? <laughs> yeah. I'm coming. So uh, yeah, I'm with you that, and it and it's almost like you there's some sort of kindred soul, kindred spirit thing going on when you're out in the trails, whether it's with another person or or with a, your dog, right? It's incredible. So it's very spiritual, you know. This conversation we're having is very spiritual. It reminds me of I last week I one of the books I read was on uh, Zen Buddhism, and this guy made the point that the people who are really good at what they do no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, athlete, athletes or performers, have found a way to almost transcend. You know, they found some sort of secret in the performance of what they love. I think running's a lot like that, right? It's almost like meditation, and it allows you to spiritually transcend. Or is that just crazy New Age thinking? No, you're absolutely right with that. Um, and I find more so the longer your runs become, um, the more it brings you that serenity and that peace in your life. I mean, honestly, there's hours that'll pass by sometimes that I don't remember, you know, and that what I remember during those hours is the thoughts that I had, you know, thinking about, you know, maybe you had a bad day and you're thinking about it and analyzing it, and then you find a solution. And, you know, I think it teaches you to accept yourself, accept your life, um, love your life, and those are pretty important things. I can't find any other way except through my running. So what would you tell people who are, you know, are in, in the situation that, that we were in as teenagers where it's it's sort of hopeless, you know? It's not, not I wouldn't say it's totally hopeless. That's probably the wrong word, but you're bored. And, and you say you, you should go for a run or go for a ride. And they say, well, I don't want to do that. That's hard work or, you know, I hate it. What would you say to them? Thinking of myself when I was a teenager before something finally clicked where I was bored enough to want to try it. Um, and I think the hardest thing is pulling kids away from the video games and, you know, maybe showing them, you know, let's just give it a try and if you don't like it, that's okay. Um, you know, explaining it is supposed to be hard because it's it's not easy. It's not easy living a healthy lifestyle. Um, you know, somehow stressing to them that if you take care of your body now because you've only got one body, you know, later on in life, you're not going to be that person that's on all these medications for, you know, diabetes and, you know, other common issues that people have from eating poorly and not being active. Christina, this is an interesting thing or, or point. We talked just now about how endurance sports and running, how it gives you spiritual or, or mental clarity, but it also... One of the things I noticed, you know, when I started running many, many years ago was it allowed me to connect with my physical body and understand it in a much more deeper and intimate way. And part of that manifests and then you start thinking, well, I want to put better food in my body or I want to do these sort of stretches or, you know, this sort of uh, uh, strength routine, right? So Mm -hmm. you may not start there, but it leads you to a more intimate relationship with your body. No, it does, and you actually start to really want to respect your body and take care of it because if you're you're not healthy and you're not taking care of yourself, it can't perform well. You know, it's just like a car. You have to change the oil. You have to maintain it and take care of things when they start coming apart. Um, I find as an athlete, 
I do care about my body because, you know, if I'm injured and don't take care of the injury, it gets worse and then I can't do the things that bring me peace and serenity in my life. And it's really hard to not be able to do those things. And, you know, as far as eating goes, I I love whoopie pies. I love chocolate. Um, (laughs) Walking away from that, I can't do 100%, but I don't eat it every day. I give myself one cheat day a week, and it's a special day, and you look forward to that. You know, so it does teach you to eat more of the fruits, the vegetables, um, you know, well-rounded meals, you know, which keeps you away from the doctor, too. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been injured, obviously. All of us get injured. How do you yep. uh, how do you deal with a with a three month or a six month injury where you can't do what you love to do? Yeah, I had initially started running fifty mile races because I thought it was funny and I didn't train for them. Um, that really got a hold of me in two thousand and eleven, where I ended up with a huge injury. Um, suffered through pretty much an entire year of either pain or bed rest, and it's brutal. You know, my fiance was very patient with me. Um, you know, you, you start to find yourself becoming depressed, upset, the why me, um, not listening to your doctor because you don't want to take that time to rest. And I think being patient through an injury and maybe finding a different outlet temporarily is a good idea, but athletes, they don't deal well with injury. And that's probably one of the hardest things about getting hurt. Yeah, it's it's been the hard. I think that's been the hardest thing for me to learn because your your tendency is to want to work through it, and mm-hmm. it, sometimes you don't. It, that's the wrong answer. The wrong the right answer is to rest. No, it is, and that was you know I think it's something when you mature as an athlete, I think you start to learn that you need to take that time. You know, two or three weeks of time off is not going to really hurt your training that much. Um, you're not going to lose that much fitness. And really, when I get injured now, I look at it as this is a great opportunity to get some other things done in my life that I've been putting on the back burner, um, you know, more sedentary things. Yeah. But exactly. 2012, you know, that's kind of what happened to me was I had this awful injury, um, got to the point where I wasn't listening to my doctor, so they didn't even want to see me anymore, and just took four months off completely. And then I hired a running coach to stop me from hurting myself found an incredible physical therapist to help treat the injury, and somehow I became fast, you know, and that was just a side effect of finally getting frustrated with myself and wondering how can I stop hurting myself, how can I get better, how can I run again. Yeah, I think coaches are are just a great investment. I never used a coach, but I'll tell you where a coach is most important to me is telling, is rest weeks and recovery weeks. Mm-hmm. So last last week is a great example. I'm training for Boston right now, mm-hmm. and I was coming off a 20-mile race, and I would have maybe gone easy for a couple of days, and I would have been back on it this weekend. I would have done, you know, 16 or 20. You know, I would have done something. And my coach had me do an hour easy fart like in the woods, right? Yeah. That's yep. something I never would have given to myself because coaching myself, I would have considered that slacking off. Yeah, but in the, in the in at the end of the day, that's gonna that's gonna not only help me get to the starting line, <laughs> but it's gonna help me get to the finish line. It does, and that was the misperception. I always thought, okay, coaches are for elite athletes because they need to run a million miles a week, and I can't handle that kind of training. 
And when I finally hired a coach to stop myself from getting injured, what I found out is, wow, you actually do less than, you know, your perception of what a coach is going to do for you. So that was a really incredible experience. And I love my coach. He's awesome. Yeah. He gives me my schedule, adjusts it accordingly. But if you are a coach athlete, it's extremely important to make sure you share, okay, I'm not feeling good this day. You know, I feel this type of injury coming on or this hurts, that hurts, because they can modify your schedule for you where without a coach, you know, it's fine. You're just going blindly and like, oh, I'll run through this. It'll pass. And sometimes right. it doesn't pass. And you tend not to plan as much. You, you you don't see the bigger picture, which really we just had a conversation about injury. You know, training's the same way. You've got to have a goal or a vision someplace way out that you can focus on instead of thinking about what is going on today, and that's what a coach really helps with. Yeah, it's it's just great. I mean, I recommend coaches for absolutely anybody who wants to improve their running. Yep, or, or just stay healthy. <laughs> yeah, just stay healthy, I would, I would yeah. say. Um, so we were talking about food a little bit, and what I found recently with my own training is that I'm – I'm taking less stuff like, um, you know, the traditional sugar stuff that they pass out at these races, right? I'm not going to name any brand names, but you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. I uh, do know. Gels and sports drinks, because what I'm realizing is that they really don't do anything. They do about, they give you about three minutes, but that's that's it, right? And you're better off just eating real food. No, the real food is definitely... Um, I think key, especially when you start getting into the longer races. Um, I do take gels. I do sometimes eat the, you know, real sugary ones. But I try to carry about three or four different brands with me because what I find is if I keep taking too many gels, I'll actually throw up on the trail. Um, By combining it with regular food, um, I use the electrolyte pills. And then having an occasional gel, that seems to keep my energy stable enough where I can handle the entire race, even the longer ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you get out beyond the marathon, um, you know, you're out in the woods for six, seven hours, you you need to eat something. It really doesn't matter what. It's all about how to get those calories in, right, calories per hour. Yeah, you know, the hard thing is sometimes at these aid stations, you know, some people can handle it, but they'll have cheese pizza out there, um, these really awkward foods, and I've found for myself if I eat something that's dripping grease or loaded with cheese, I get very sick. Yeah. Where if I eat something simple like a cookie or a brownie, um, potatoes that you dip in salt, those are lovely too. Yeah. Those help a lot more. I like the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Those are good for a little while for me, and then they come right back up again. Oh, do they? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it's tough out there. So... You know, you're you're a relatively uh, young person there, Christina. And uh, what are you going to do in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? What what do you see your life looking like? What's your vision? My vision? Um, still running. Some of the top ultra women are actually in their mid-40s. Um, actually, one of the best male runners in the country is 45 years old, and he's still taking down records. You know, obviously, interests could change over time, but... And this seems to be the sport that I enjoy the most. Definitely career change. I'm a dental hygienist right now, and I'm working on starting some running camps, um, you know, some other putting on races, and just kind of directing my life towards helping people change their lives through exercise. Yeah. So I think 
becoming an advocate for taking better care of yourself and getting outside. And, you know, you don't have to be racing or competing, but just finding something that you love and that keeps you healthy. Yeah, I tell you, a White Mountains running camp would be a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. You know, sometime in the sort of, well, it's not off-season for ultra runners, but it's off-season for for marathon runners, which is the June, July, and August time frame. Um, Getting out on those trails in the morning would be just wonderful. You know, if you could, you'd find one of these ski areas that uh, has some rooms that they're not doing anything with, and and it would be a, a great uh, a great idea. I think that would be cool. Well, actually, we already have a um, camp in the works, which is incredible, and we have a couple people signed up already. And it's exactly that. It's a camp where we'll be doing some incredible runs above tree line in the whites. Um, it'll be a, you know, first half of the day will be all about exercise, and the second half of the day is about being pampered, where you end up receiving spa-type treatments, um, pedicures, massages. Um, there's going to be a you know, makeup artist doing a makeover, a photo shoot. So it's going to be really fun in a beautiful house that we're renting up in Jackson as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's going to just be an absolute blast and hopefully get some girls up there. What's the date on it? It's May 17th through the 20th. Okay, so in 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 White Mountain terms, that's sort of springtime, right? It's springtime, so it's going to be muddy. Yeah, it's mud season and... There's actually once you you when you break the tree line, you're still going to have ice. I mean, there's going to be some. It's like the spring thaw time of year, right? It is. White. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's so, really pretty up there. Um, it's amazing. I've had some of the most amazing epiphanies up in those mountains. Just the weather can be anything, but that's okay. If you're a trail runner, it doesn't matter. It's just a blast. Yeah, and that's one of the things we're trying to you know teach these people is you know. Come out, enjoy the weekend with us. You can run in any weather, any condition. Um, you can get above tree line. You don't have to be this incredible runner to be able to do that. And, you know, the other thing we're doing, which is cool, is giving people a sample of six different ways of eating. Um, we have somebody that's designing meals, and we're going to focus on a gluten-free, a vegan, um, vegetarian, a high-protein, um, stuff like that, so that they can get a taste of you can make these meals easily, and we'll teach you about what they are, and that it's affordable, too. And you're saying this is just for the ladies? Just for women right now. Yeah, sure. eventually we might cater to uh, guys. <laughs> yeah, so good. That's great. You'll make sure you send me the links, and we'll we'll get those in the show notes. Okay, that'd be great. So now now you're looking at another transformation. You're going to transform yourself into an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Um, I think it's fun, and with the amount of running I have to do right now, it'll be nice to have a little more of a flexible schedule and to just be a good ambassador for the sport. Tell people, give people that passion you have for it, right? I absolutely want to share that because it just it's changed my life. I mean, I could not be happier or in a better place than I am right now. All right. Do you have any website links that you'd like to share as we walk towards the exit here? Sure. Um, my personal blog, which is just fun stories about the running and the racing and the training that I do, that's um, www.dangergirldh.com. And the site for the transformation camp is www.athleticandbeautiful.com. Awesome. All right. 
I'm going to let you go. Thanks for chatting this All right, morning. All right, thank you. Good luck digging out. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Rest your weary soul, a sojourn in the gray land of effort or not effort. Walking down the carpeted halls of my office, I break into a bouncy trot. I lavishly feel the twitching strength in my calves and thighs. I feel like a physical coiled spring, like an athlete. This, this is the training effect. It is the end of a rest week. What is this strange new world? What is this bizarre universe where I run less and feel stronger? It is the rest week. In the bad old days when I was young, cue the old guy sitting in a long chair on his porch, when I was a boy, we didn't get rest weeks. All we had was rocks. And instead of resting, we just hit ourselves with the rocks. Yeah, that's how training was supposed to be hard. Darn kids these days with their rest weeks. I have through necessity and good coaching, learn something new. And I think many of us old-timers are learning this new thing. I don't have to run every day. I don't have to beat myself senseless with miles and effort and, and intensity. I can, God forbid, take a week off. I mean, not completely off, but off in the rest week sense. Off in the sense of less, not more. What an epiphany. These rest weeks work. Not only the physical, but the mental rest is a wonderful boon in the middle of a training campaign. I find myself filled with barely restrained energy, actually looking forward to the next hard week's workouts. I find myself mentally buoyed by the rest, and instead of grudgingly forcing myself to the workouts, I look forward to them. Instead of finding ways to cheat the workouts because I'm mentally and physically exhausted, I find ways to cheat in the other direction, do it more than the coach asked for and, and liking it. And this, this is an interesting turn of events. There's a lesson here for us old timers and you young fire breathers as well. I have always seen a marathon campaign as a monolithic 14 to 16 week escalating calendar of effort. You had some step back weeks, but these were not rest weeks per se. They were the backside of the wave and a fresh set was heading right at you. The hardest part about this new world is mentally convincing myself that it's okay. <laughs> it's okay not to run every day. It's okay to schedule a rest day or a rest week. It's not cheating to step away from the hard workouts for a week and let your body heal. Is there a loss in performance by not hitting it hard constantly? I mean, if there's any loss in performance, it's outweighed by the simple fact that I will probably get to the starting line this year without having to take a couple weeks off from injury. I'll actually complete the training cycle, and it's been a few years since that's happened. What's the value of showing up healthy? Certainly, I still think that more and harder volume could squeeze another 5, 10, 15 minutes off my finishing time, but what good is that if I don't make it to the starting line in one piece? As hard as it is with my personality... I think that is a trade-off I'm willing to make. 
I'll need a good day to qualify for Boston this year. It's not a certainty. I'd give it a 50-50 chance. And I'm not sure I have the hill strength or the miles to hold the pace all the way to the end. But I'm going to show up with a chance. And that's what training campaigns are all about, giving you a chance on race day, putting you in the position to succeed, to meet your A goal if you have a good day and the weather is right. That's all you can ask for. This has been a mental shift for me not to work so hard, to take some rest weeks, to show up healthy. I'm sure many of you struggle with the same demons. I feel good about this. If we truly believe that it's not about the results, if we truly believe that it's about the journey and the honest effort, then we can let ourselves be healthy and at a healthy level of training and still achieve the merit of the thing. The hardest thing for me over the last 15 or so years as I've gotten older is learning to gracefully give it back, to keep the core of the gift, but to give back the hard edges of competitiveness and training, to be true to myself and worthy to my training without immolating myself in the process. It's not a loss. It's a victory. This is the power of the rest week. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Spring is here, and you, my fearless friends, have emerged into the springtime of the end of episode 3-256 of the Run Run Live podcast. If you're new to the show, you probably didn't make it this far. But if you're one of my old friends, I thank you again for sharing my adventure and helping me expunge my demons through literary and auditory excess. You've probably inferred that I'm a reader. I like to read, and I read well. I retain the information and learn from reading. I think it's a wonderful skill set, and it helps my life, my career, and my my writing. What have I read over the last couple of weeks? Well... You know, I I read Matt's Life Song book from the previous show. I also read Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and The Truth About Reality by Brad Warner. And this was a really interesting book. I mean, it was flawed, but it had some flashes of brilliance, moments of clarity, and some really solid moments of aha epiphany. It makes me want to learn more about Zen Buddhism, but I don't think I'm the meditation type. I don't know where... I would find an hour a day to stare at a blank wall. I also reread a good translation of Sun Tzu's Art of War, and I'm currently reading Neon Angel by Sherry Curry, who was the lead singer of The Runaways, an all-girl rock band with Joan Jett in the 70s and 80s. And I like it because I remember the times, but I feel really sad for her and all the, all the weirdness she went through. I think it's a movie, too, but I haven't seen it. As... As I said to Matt last uh, couple weeks ago in the show where I was interviewing Matt, the 70s were a weird time. The baby boomers in the 60s, they broke down all the old moral codes and societal norms, but it sort of left a void that filled the 70s with a lot of bad stuff under the guise of, of freedom. So my next race is the Eastern States 20-miler a few weeks before Boston. And I'll try to pace that at race pace, see what happens. If all goes well, I'll have a shot at racing Boston well. But it really depends on the weather. And if it's hot at all, I really don't race well. After that, I'll have to see what happens next. If I qualify at Boston, 
I'll probably do some longer trail races in the summer and some mountain biking. Enjoy the summer. If I don't qualify, well, you know, I can either double down at another marathon or mount a longer campaign to train through the summer and nail it sometime in the late summer. But I'm not worried. There's always something to do. There's always another adventure waiting just outside the front door. Remember to join me on April 28th this year, 2013, for the 22nd running of the Groton Road Races. We are in the final stretch in our preparations, and everything is going well. It's going fine. Also, remember that I'm running Boston this year for Team Hoyt. I would very much appreciate it if you would help me help them change the world by clicking on the donation banner on the right side of my webpage at www.runrunlib.com. Also, the uh, direct publishing of the show notes with all my links and everything in it uh, to the mailing list continues to work. So if you're interested in seeing it pop up in your inbox each time I publish a show, just go to runrunlib.com or check out the show notes and sign up on the mailing list. I'm also up to 11 published chapters of the audio version of my second book, The Mid-Packer's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So if you're interested, you can visit my site or my Kickstarter project and, and hook up with that. So it's been nice to chat with you again, my friends. Please keep me in your thoughts, and I'll keep you in mine. We are all part of the same big adventure, and I'll see you out there. Thank you for riding along. My name is Chris, and that is CYKT Russell on all the social media and email systems. The podcast is free for you because I like doing it. So it is only your internal moral compass that will compel you to let me know what you think by leaving a comment on my website at www.runrunlive.com. Or even better, if you want to change my world, check out my books in regular Kindle or audio format. The links are on my website and in the show notes. And if you want to be kept in the loop, you can sign up for the email list on runrunlive.com as well. I will send you the show notes. So remember, love life, do epic stuff, and I'll see you out there. (laughs) 